Welcome People First Leaders. This is a special episode of the Leading People First podcast, where you get to listen in on the honest and uncomfortable conversations from our latest Leaders of Equity, Allyship, and Diversity event. If you are ready to take a stand and take action against hate, violence, inequity, and injustice in our society, you are not alone. The Leaders for Equity, Allyship, and Diversity host weekly events to allow leaders to come together, discuss, learn, share, and activate to make a difference in the world. Listen to the end to get more information on how you can join us at our next live event. In this episode, we brought together a group of panelists to discuss their reactions to the verdict of the policeman who murdered George Floyd and what we need to do to reimagine reform because of the police violence across America. So get ready to come together and lead, and let's dive on in. So welcome to LEAD. I'm Yvonne Alston, one of the founding members of this organization. I'm joined tonight by Chris Lynn, giveaway, another LEAD founder, and Ms. Sarah Phelps, who was off last week, is here tonight. Thank you so much for joining. All right. So tonight, part two, part two is a sensitive, timely topic, reimagining reform, police violence across America. Um, just a couple house rules. For those of you who uh, have participated in LEAD before, you know that we're not afraid to tackle top topics. And uh, this one was just a fantastic discussion last week. Unfortunately, we didn't get to a lot of the things that we wanted to. So we asked these wonderful speakers to come back for part two. Uh, for those of you unfamiliar with our house rules, they're pretty simple. We want civility to guide our actions. We wanna respect and embrace our difference of opinions and perspectives. And we wanna create a safe space for vulnerability, transparent dialogue, which requires empathy and at times discretion. So for all of you, please note that this session is being recorded so that those who are unable to attend can listen to it at another time. Um, it will be available on the Leading People First podcast if you wanna revisit it within a few days. Uh, also, please post any questions in the chat. And I'm not sure, is it Chris or Sarah who's man in the chat? Oh, Sarah Phelps is man in the chat tonight, okay. So I'll try to address as many of them as possible. But without further ado, I'm going to give you a little brief background on our speakers tonight. Lauren Barton is a writer, speaker from Kansas City, who lives in San Francisco, Cali. He has authored two books, Stray Dope, A 360-Degree Looking Into American Drug Culture. And, we, and his second book, All We Really Need is Love, Stories of Dating Relationships, Heartbreak, and Marriage. Laurent has also published essays and articles about race, mass incarceration, politics, and dating. He's appeared on Al Jazeera, TEDx, Salon, Your Tango, 7x7, Black Enterprise, The Good Man Project, and others. He believes that as a writer, one of his core responsibilities is to create, be honest, and encourage others to do so as well. We also have in the building Kenny Green, who is a certified public accountant, has dedicated his work to social and environmental justice. He's conducted trainings and consulted with the Stanford City Police Department to promote positive engagement with communities of color. He serves as the co-chair of Law Enforcement Action Committee for Stanford Stands Against Racism and also on the boards of the Jackie Robinson Park of Fame, the Carroll Family Foundation, founded by NBA hoopster Demare Carroll. 
And last but certainly not least, we have Eli Rigatuso, who is an Omaha native and identifies as a queer transmasculine two-spirit of the Menominee Nation. He is a local activist, multimedia artist, and a senior video producer director at Bellevue University. He's an outspoken advocate for the transgender community and was instrumental in founding Heartland Pride, the local 501c3 organization that produces annual pride celebrations to this day. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much, Laurent, Kenny, Eli, for coming back again. We appreciate you coming back into the into the lead group, the lead forum to continue this important conversation. So one thing that I want to uh, start off with a topic um, that is uh, both very timely. Um, there's been a lot of talk about it, the subject of qualified immunity. And um, I just want to give our audience just a little bit of background on that for those who aren't very familiar about the topic. Uh, in 1967, the Supreme Court carved out a qualified immunity exception that helps government officials, in particular police and law enforcement, that they cannot be sued if they were acting in good faith and didn't know what they were doing was illegal. So over the years, the court expanded that doctrine so that now police officers who knowingly violate someone's rights, they are still protected unless the court has ruled that their behavior was considered unconstitutional um, and so for the last uh, year, a federal appeals court found that police officers, um, a lot of times causing harm, um, are, are protected uh, from any sort of personal criminal liability under qualified immunity. So I wanted to bring this up because as you know, may know, uh, our, our wonderful Tim Scott, <laughs> Republican Senator from South Carolina um, is, is talking about the Justice Act. I see Sarah shaking her head already, I know. Um, and, and as part of the police reform bill. So I wanted to get your uh, perspectives on uh, qualified immunity and how, that, how you feel that is impacting current police behaviors and how it should be addressed through police reform. I think I'm gonna pass this to Eli and Laurent because I know they're gonna really must tear through this. So I, I probably <laughs> won't have to say anything. <laughs> okay, all right, very good. Very good, so who's up? Who wants to uh, tackle qualified immunity? Um, Eli, why don't you, uh, uh, when you knock this one out uh, um, and, I'll, uh, and I'll catch it for us. Well, you know, I appreciate that y'all <laughs> are deferring to me. Um, you know, I look at qualified immunity very similar to like in our in our work environments that aren't associated with police work, right? Mm -hmm. In the in those work environments, what do we do when we have diversity, equity, inclusion efforts types of things happening, right? Uh, we don't have a qualified immunity, but they don't hold people accountable for racist remarks or things that they say and do if they say they didn't intend harm. You see mm. what I'm saying? So we have this switch of impact and intent and who gets to decide what, where the impact is, right? Certainly not the person who's being impacted. What happens is we shift this and we say, well, this person didn't intend you harm, therefore no big deal, right? 
I see qualified immunity as it's like they literally aren't being held accountable in any sort of structural sense for when they are purposely causing harm. It's the same thing as when someone purposely causes harm within any work environment Mm -hmm. and they're allowed an immunity by saying, well, I didn't intend any harm. I didn't mean to hurt you. That wasn't what I, I'm really, I'm a good person. (laughs) That's how I feel about that. Like, I don't think that, I think that everyone should be held accountable for the ways in which they treat people. If it isn't in line with treating people with dignity and respect, it's a problem. That's when we talk about these systemic issues that, that have been happening over decades right? Over centuries even. It's like, why is it that if I decide that I am going to do what I need to do to become a cop, that I then have to have some sort of out just in case? Mm. I don't think, I don't think having that available makes sense. If you're doing the right thing to begin with, you shouldn't need that kind of protection, right? Well, it literally, for some people, I think they look at it ironically as the get out of jail free card, right? You think when you really think about it, um, go ahead, Laurent, what what were you going to jump in? No, like, um, I want to, you know, I want to back up Eli, you know, it's it's one of those things where they're, you know, like one of the most important things I learned within the past couple of years is that impact Trump's intent. And so similar to what Eli's saying is like, you know, if I'm driving a car, right, and if I and and if I bang that left, and if I crash into Yvonne, I can say, "Oh my God, Yvonne, I didn't, I didn't mean to crash into you." But that doesn't change thing because I still crash into you. So it's like you know your your intent is is useless. Um, I've never heard of a job that you know, and again going going back to what Eli said, I never I never heard of a job that just like almost has a guarantee that. If you kill somebody, like if you commit a crime, if you injure somebody that you can just say, well, I was, well, I was in fear for my life. Right. And, you know, that's not what I what I meant to do. And because of qualified immunity, because of the police unions being so strong, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like cops have just freedoms to just to just kill. Um, I think qualified immunity is the thing that needs to go needs to go away i mean you know we live in a system of racism white supremacy anti-blackness so all the police officer has has to do is that to justify him shooting an unarmed black person uh specifically black males to say oh i was in fear of my life yvonne it was either it was either him or me and Mm -hmm. what's going to happen is like even if that person goes before a trial, most of America, i.e. most of white America is, is going to believe that that police officer, <clears throat> excuse me, because they view police as, 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 as the saviors. We view police as people who inflict harm. Mm. So for me, this further pushes, this is further evidence that there's no, there's no existence of ignorance when it comes to racism. So I, I believe that qualified um, immunity is the, is the mechanism that 
needs to go and that once it once we are able to to do away with it then accountability will start yeah Yeah, and you know you also think about it as this whole like we keep hearing the same thing repeated i was afraid for my life i was afraid for my life you took a job that would put you at high risk so therefore i don't understand how you can then now all of a sudden say, I feared for my life. Why are you a cop? And again, I don't mean to, I know that there are cops out there who take their job very seriously, that, that really want to do the right thing. But again, if we're not creating an environment where these folks can even come forward and say, hey, there's a problem with this guy over right. here. Because we're not even fostering that kind of an environment. Not at People all. People are afraid. People are afraid to speak up, to speak out, and to say there's a problem. Because what happens then? They become the target. Right. You, you know, know what's crazy? Our culture is uh, so uh, rampant uh, inside the force uh, and outside of it. Um, but we're going to get to the fear factor in a few minutes. Go ahead, Kenny. Yeah, I mean, th- these two have really said it all here. I mean, I think we we stand in alignment with this one. I mean, you know, when we start with immunity as the situation, it just leads to the, the perspective that if, if I do something wrong, nothing's going to happen. And if we think about any other workplace, I mean, I spent a lot of time in finance, so I couldn't imagine, you know, I'm, it was a situation where I had to wire money. And, and if I wired this money, to a wrong bank in Russia, that was it. My career was done. There wasn't going to be sorry. Um, you you didn't intend to want the wire the money there. It's going to be like the money's gone. Bye. <laughs> there wasn't going to be a a a you know qualified immunity situation here. And so, but now you have this happening in a situation where someone could die, and this was just money being transferred, not even someone's life. So, I don't really see this this happening in any other marketplace, in any other business um, situation. So why have it here where you start with such a high bar uh, if something goes wrong, I'm not at fault at all. I mean, that that's a little egregious to be at that level. Um, they should probably have some protection, but that bar is way too high. Yeah. Crazy high, right? I mean, just, I mean, just imagine like, so even doctors. I, I, I mean, I don't think that, um, gosh, I mean, com, uh, com, comparing uh, not to cut you off, Yvonne, but do do doctors have that level of, um, I guess, lack of a better term, level of immunity from from malpractice suits and and, and being fired? I mean, I, I mean, that, that is almost un, unheard of. Yeah, no, I know they carry malpractice insurance. Yeah. Um, but this brings me to an interesting point that I wanted to discuss with the group here. Is, is part of changing the culture of policing and reform is by making the employer actually responsible for the actions of the employee, right? So to your point, Lamar, we do that with doctors, we do it with lawyers, we do it across many industries. If we did that with law enforcement, would the employer be forced to change the culture because they become the ones who are on the hook for culpability and for financial liability? So if there was a shift to where the responsibility becomes that of the employer and they become liable and then the police departments are getting sued left and right in these civil suits for wrongful death actions, do you think that that would have any any movement on police reform? 
I mean, uh, I'll jump in on that one first. I mean, it, in, in, in many cases, it is true. I mean, the city would be on a hook if we think about George Floyd, the, the lawsuit there. Um, and, and the funny thing about Minneapolis, um, they do have a community review board. It started because of, uh, you know, it was an elderly couple in the 90s that got killed. Um, and, and the people were outraged. And so they have boards like this to actually reduce lawsuits. It actually reduces lawsuits for the city because people go through the board and settle some of their, their, their suits there. But so they are on the hook in the end of the day um, for on a civil suits um, in most states. So, so, I mean, it hasn't really, that hasn't really changed the needle. We still see um, you know, black lives not being valued, um, and, and, and in these cases, so that really hasn't changed the, the, the needle. Um, we need more. I mean, you know, that, that we, we probably don't have enough accountability that the cities really are saying, well, I need to change because I'm going to be facing, you know, a billion dollar lawsuits. We don't have enough that are getting through anyway. So no one's really afraid to say, well, um, you know, I need to really talk to my police officers to bring the suits down. I mean, no one's, you don't really hear any cities bringing that up as an issue um, in, in their budgets that they're going to get sued. So, so for right now, they're not really afraid. You would think so, right? I mean, with schools being underfunded, with, for example, I live in San Francisco, we have an incredibly huge homeless problem right and so with with all the funds that are paid out to police terrorism victims that money could be diverted to actually solving some of the problems here but kenny that was brilliant it's like that's never thought of and instead of paying these victims 20 and 30 million dollars i'm sorry the uh, the families i'm sorry how about we actually we do some preventative maintenance, you know, like what's the, uh, what's the old saying, uh, a, a, uh, ounce of prevention is, is worth a pound of cure or something like that. I, I mean, that's, I mean, that's how we should be thinking, but, but we're not, it's like, we have unlimited coffers to, to pay victims of police terrorism, but not money to solve anything else. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I like this comment that Chris put here um, in the chat. There's also different types of accountability based on the race and gender of the police officer. Female and BIPOC officers seem to get fired or charged more rapidly than white men. And mm -hmm. again, that's a truth. You yeah. know, I we already think about this and look at the, um, you know, like when we talk about lawsuits, it would be really interesting to actually do research around how many lawsuits actually have been settled that we don't even know about. How much money has actually been sent been spent there already, and then why are we being? Uh, reactive instead of proactive. And that's where we get into a lot of issues around, you know, when I look at what happened to me when I came out as trans in 2015, and within three years, I am facing an incredible amount of discrimination being treated horribly, people misgendering me left and right, people mispronouncing my name. I have never seen Eli spelled E-L-I pronounced Ellie ever in my life, but it happened to me consistently. And here I end up on a written warning because I'm the angry trans man. 
and I'm a threat and all of these other things. But when I went to them in 2015, I went to the director of HR and I said, I am transgender. I am going to start my transition. What are you going to do to support this non-discrimination policy we have? Are you going to proactively do some training? Because I think the people in my work group need it. Um, well, I guess we could put it up the flagpole and see what the president of the university says. Well, the president's response, literally, I have this saved email was, is someone being discriminated against? And my response back was, why would you wait until someone's being discriminated against to actually proactively prevent issues? It's almost like um, when I was in college at Quinnipiac, we had talked about this concept of the bean counters, and it was regarding automotive uh, automotive uh, uh, product failure, uh, class action lawsuits, right? So basically, you know, say Volkswagen produced a particular year vehicle and they knew that something was wrong, they would actually sit back in the back room and assess, well, what would it cost us? to go ahead and proactively fix all of these vehicles that are on the road versus what would it cost us to settle lawsuits for wrongful deaths as a result of these cars? And they sit there and go, and well, it's cheaper if a couple of people die, we'll pay out the, the death claims rather than to fix, proactively fix what's at issue and risk it, and, loss of life. And if the person even thinks to file a lawsuit, See, that's the other piece of it. It's not, it's not about like, I think about in, you know, my native way is you don't actually go out and look to create issues, right? You realize already how interconnected you are with the world and the environment and people and that our actions actually have an impact on those around us, Yeah, you know, and, and, and I don't understand why there is this um, belief. I mean, I know folks who are LGBTQ, who have served on police forces, who have dealt with discrimination and all these other things. And when they push the issue, they get fired. Yeah. I could say as a black woman, same thing happens in corporate America. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, and if you're not fired, you're automatically pegged as the ABW um, yep, yep. I see Latanya going, yep. <laughs> or, you know, and next thing you know, you're, you're being performance managed uh, in some capacity um, or you're, you know, too aggressive or, you know, yeah. But, that, but how often do we see that happening within the yeah. police force? And let, if you're not, I mean, if you're a white officer, probably not as frequently, right? No. <laughs> so Go ahead, there's something in the chat here. Chris put something in here. Um, if you guys have seen it about the police unions and that just mm -hmm. struck a chord um, with, with me because um, it's, it, they are a powerful force, a powerful group. And I'm, I'm all for unions too as well. I think what's missing from the police union is the community's voice. And, yeah. and they're really standing in tandem with saying they're protecting cops at all costs. But whenever you do something at all costs, there are costs. And, and, and usually who's paying the cost is the community paying the cost. So I think, you know, in that case, I think with the unions, there definitely needs to be a change with them and how they 
interact with our police department because right now they have not been the positive influence that the community needs. I mean, you know, and, and, and we haven't heard any of their voices speak out and say, hey, this is egregious, this shouldn't happen. Um, we typically don't get that from them as well. So I think it's a definite, they are a definite stakeholder in this, in this uh, reform process that definitely needs to be um, interacted with. Yeah. What, uh, what is the group's thoughts? Um, I know that Sarah put a question up here in the chat. Um, I'm just gonna read this verbatim. She says, I just read an article about the othering of black women by Fabiola Sineas. It mentioned Micaiah Bryant being referred to as an out of control woman, ABW, uh, Sandra Bland being combative and the nine-year-old girl in New York that was pepper sprayed and told you did this to yourself. Black women have been denied a girlhood and are referred to as aggressive and having inability to control themselves. She asserts that black women are denied the protection of patriarchy and that blackness is seen through the lens of masculinity. Can you comment on how you see the contribution of police organizations to this issue and how the black community might address it? Um, yeah, um, I want, so I want to address that. Um, <clears throat> first off, when you're black in America, you're, you're, you're not denied, I mean, like you're denied humanity, right? So that means that you it doesn't so there's something that i that i always say y'all and i really really want you to un understand what, what i'm about to say it doesn't matter how you walk talk act or dress you're black so because of that you know you could be the most docile most uh agreeable happiest person alive you know you will be uh you will be treated as a black person i mean if you look look to you know the civil rights movement you know you see black people marching through the through, through the streets holding up just picket signs and, and they're being attacked uh, with dogs water water hoses police beating them mind you like they're not they're not threatening but because of the color of your skin you are deemed as as threatening so society views black men and black and black women the same but at the same time differently uh you know, I'm not a black, I'm not a black woman, obviously, but how, uh, however, me being black and, and, and being raised by a black woman, I, I could see that, that, you know, even if she questioned something, even if she got a little, it, like, let's say like she, you know, disagreed with somebody, she was, she was automatically uh, ABW. So, so, I mean, um, when, when we talk about uh, Miss, Miss Bryant, you, you you know black folks have always been othered so on that i mean there's look there's nothing that we can do to uh, to not be viewed like this by white america I, I mean it's just it's just it's just not possible so when i hear people like you know senator uh, tim scott when i uh, when i hear uh VP Kamala Harris uh, say things like, "Well, America is it is isn't a racist country." I mean, I, I I I have to ask, like, you know, what America are you living in? You know, so it's like at so so it's like at the end of the day, it, there this is this is a puzzle that Black people will never be able to solve. And just and you know, of, oh, go ahead, Kenny. 
Ron, now Ron said something great here and just wanted to, and, and, and the point I wanted to make actually two, one to um, just piggyback on that. I mean, in America, the, the thing about racism and, you know, you get those comments. I watched um, Tim Scott, you know, you know, come on after Biden and, and say his piece. And it kind of, I pause when, when he said uh, th there is no racism. And America infused racism into law and that's how America was built. Now, over time, we've worked hard as, as, as people of color, white people among with us, we all fought together, we removed most of those laws. And so what's left is the culture. Now the culture is still here. It's still here, it's still live, it's still kicking. Um, it might not be a rule on the book like redlining that says you can't move into this neighborhood, but because I've discriminated against you financially for 300 or so years before, you can't afford to move into the neighborhood. And so I still have this wall up in segregation. So the culture is here. And so when you get on TV and you say, hey, you might be saying, I don't see a law in the books anymore. And okay, that's accurate. But the culture is here because we see it in the numbers. When you look at corporate America, when you look at the CEOs, when you look at the leaders, when you look at Congress, everywhere you look, you see the numbers. So you can't deny it's here, um, even though you can't point to that rule that you could point to in the 1800s that says, well, you can't join, you can't vote. Um, but we're still seeing it in our culture. Yeah, that's very true. Um, I want to jump in real quick to uh, bring out Chris's question here. Uh, it's for each of the panelists. If you had complete control to reform the system, how would you rebuild law enforcement in our country? That's big. <laughs> so who, who's going to go up first? I mean, I guess I'll go first since I was just talking here because that's a big one. I mean, wow, that's a big one. Great question, Chris. Um, I, I think I would start with having conversations with police officers and, and, and talking with them. They have this locker room talk and that's where their real culture comes out. And, mm -hmm. and right now there's a culture um, that's not really valuing black lives. It's a culture. That's the same culture that's in America. So I would want to change that first, change the culture um, is what I would want to change. Secondly, you, I would want to have policies in place that you have real accountability because you got to have something that you can count on, real accountability. With Derek Chauvin, we all weren't sure. Even though we had a video, even though all of us knew, but when I'm watching the trial and they're like, well, we're not sure how he died. We all worried. We got butterflies in our stomach because we weren't sure if accountability would even be established in that case with a video and it's clear. We still weren't sure. So those, you know, for me, the two things that I would want to do is, you know, give, have real accountability and change the culture that's there as well to be an inclusive, equitable culture. Okay, Eli? Well, that's a, you know, I, I believe that we need to have more citizen engagement. There needs to be more, um, I think, 
citizens willing to actually put time into kind of reviewing some of the things that are going on and and reviewing individual officers even over time and saying, how many times have you had this happen? How many times have you been a part of something similar to XYZ? And then looking at, is this person someone who can be reformed? Mm. Is this person someone who actually is going to see how important it is that they are all on the same page? Or is this someone who we are going to have to let go? See, you know, the other problems that we run into, especially with some of the stuff that happens now, um, because they say, you know, they have rights too, right? Okay. So they have rights too. If they get fired in one city, they can leave and go to another city. And the only thing that we can do is actually confirm that they were employed at the previous place. You can't actually call that other department and say, Hey, what were the, was this person let go? Were they right? And I mean, that's true for any job, but the truth is, is these folks get to go run off and go someplace else carrying, mm -hmm. you know, that record gets left behind. So there needs to be some sort of a trail. I think mm -hmm. that, that gets followed. If you are, I think they should be held to a higher accountability, not be given so many additional outs so many additional ways to like, this is, it should be seen as a position of great honor. That's what they want it to be seen as, but it isn't, it isn't when you're killing people. It isn't when you kill black people. It isn't when you kill native indigenous people. It isn't. And when you uh, imprison them at higher rates, when you set them up, you know, and, and they end up in prison when you don't do the due diligence to keep someone out of prison and you paint this case like, look, this person has this, this and this charge on the record. So they must have done it. And then we find out years later, they actually didn't do it. You know, we think about the Central Park Five. That story, that story is disgusting, but they aren't the only ones that this has happened to. There are so many more cases. There are so many more. Um, there are young people who are being uh, uh, tried as adults. There are just there to me, it's all of it needs to be structured. There are so many ways that we need to look at this. And I don't believe, you know, um, we can't, you know, we can't use master's tools to dismantle master's house. That's okay. Audrey. I That's wish, Audrey Lord. <laughs> I, I I wish it was like a bomb reaction. <laughs> I could just like because Eli just threw the craziest bomb. Like, <laughs> and okay. it, but it's so true, you know. It, I mean, it's you're just right. Yeah, yeah. You're right, Chris. A hand clap. That's all we get. We get a hand clap on that one. <laughs> Um, so to this point, Lauren, I think you're the only one who hasn't spoken on this topic. I want to give you the opportunity to. To speak on that before I get to the next question. Sure. Um, very, uh, very good answers, y'all. Um, so I'm, I'm going to repeat something that I said at, I said on the first segment, uh, the, the late, great uh, LaVosca Barton, uh, my grandfather just passed, greatest man I've, I've, I've ever known. He is, he was from the country um, in Missouri, and he always believed that if you have a rotten tree, you know, uprooted, you know, like, uh, because, because what's going to happen is like the tree's just going to start 
you know, growing, you know, crazy different directions or, you know, because the roots are roots are bad. Right. <laughs> so it's like so when we talk about police reform, we have to understand we have to understand that the roots are bad be- because much of the police or some of the police is 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 derived from from slave patrols. I mean, if, if we look at sheriff badges, they're eerily similar to the slave patrol badges. I believe there are there were five or uh, five or six star badges. You know, it's funny, like growing up, I would get the sheriff badges when I was a kid and I didn't know like that I was playing slave catcher. Um, I, I don't think that the police can, uh, can be reformed. Uh, you know, uh, Yvonne, you're, you're 100% right. Fish goes rotten, uh, rotten from the head. Um, I don't think that it, I don't think that it can be reformed. I think that, you know, any type of, um, of, uh, practices like this is just simply wasting time and resources, but let's say that it, that, that, that it could be reformed. Uh, I, I would just, a couple suggestions. Uh, definitely, uh, as Kenny said, uh, more community engagement. There needs to be a, a police need to be. So a friend of mine, David Chastain, once once told me he's uh, you know we you know, we were talking about like you know police as far as training this and that, and I was just commenting on, on like how it's it takes longer to be a teacher than to be a police officer, and he said you know Laurent, ubiquity and quality don't mix. Right. Mm-hmm. So just the fact that it's so easy to reach that threshold to be a police officer, that means that that's just bad. So there so people need to be trained in a very different, very, very different way. Um, I believe that the power of the police unions need to be greatly reduced. Qualified immunity needs to be gone. And and finally, going 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 back to what Eli said in, in in regards to justice system. So every so many states have these innocence projects, right? You know, Midwest Midwest Innocence Project is is a uh, is an organization that I that I am that I admire. Um, there was a young there's a young man. His name was Brian Banks. He was um, the uh, I believe there was a California Innocence Project worked to uh to have him exonerated for uh for a rape that he would that he was accused and uh and sentenced from over 60 percent of those cases that these various innocent projects take on these are uh, black men so obviously we have a system that is directly targeting black men to quote political commentator yvette carnell when 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 you have that many people, it's no longer an individual choice. So it's systemic. So again, going back to what Eli says, it's more than 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 just you know police. It's the fact that we're targeting and killing black and native people at just some so egregious numbers. So I don't think that the system can be remedied. But if we did have a magic wand, those would be some of my suggestions. All right, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, Yvonne, can I jump in here real quick before you go to that? Because Leron said something, he mentioned the Innocence Project and Eli also talking about how police fear for their lives. Like those two things just just sparked something with me because at, at the end of the day, when cops interact with people, I mean, we have them because we want them to help us with potential criminals. 
if that is the stage, you know that's the environment you're going into, why do you act surprised when someone doesn't just stop when you say stop? And why are we trying to require citizens to be innocent? We're only happy if that person is innocent, they didn't do anything, and then the cop does something wrong. We'd say, hey, look, the cop did something wrong. But their job is to bring in uh, a potential suspect to be held for justice. That's their job. Their job is to bring someone in to face justice, not to like execute justice on the street. So why are they acting surprised when they say, hey, stop running, and the person doesn't run? Um, stops running. If they would stop running and everyone was respectful, we wouldn't need you. We wouldn't need a cop. We would just, people would just walk to the courthouse and face their um, crimes. But since people don't, and we know they don't, that's why we hired you. But then it's somehow we get confused and you're expecting them not to act that way. That's the problem, the mix that we have here. So people don't need to be innocent. People don't need to just be perfect. Their job is to not kill them and bring them to justice. That's what their job is supposed to be. And they should train to do that instead of protect themselves at all costs. Wow, thank you. Thank you for that, Kenny. You said something else in there and I was like, oh, I need that bomb reaction. I gotta call them. I gotta get, Zoom's gotta get it. Um, but I know we're starting to wind up on time. I don't wanna be remiss in getting to Tom's question. Um, this is really interesting. Um, are the police really a profession? You can't be a profession just because you say you are because you wear a uniform and get paid to do a job. There are special conditions such as there are for attorneys, ministers, or doctors. If they are really a profession as they claim to be, don't they need to do certain things to maintain the trust with the public they serve? And for the black community, they never had that trust, right? And so, Tom, do you wanna come off mute for a second and just kind of to that last part. I just want to make sure I'm articulating that correctly. So yeah. And this comes from my work with the military of looking, we reinvigorated this sense of being a profession, um, especially after a couple ship collisions. Um, and what it means to be a profession uh, is that you're providing a service to the public that they could not otherwise provide themselves. So think about doctors, lawyers, ministers, um, and they operate with a degree of expert knowledge. Um, I mean, they have guidelines, but they have to figure out how to apply those guidelines and knowledge and a, a code of ethics, a professional ethics that they hold them that they must hold themselves accountable to. And, and that is what has, in my sense, has really failed here is that they have not held themselves accountable uh, in a transparent way to, to do that. It, it all goes behind the blue wall. Um, they, they cloud the facts with their report um, in, in that regards. And, and so that trust has been broken with the public. We did that in the Navy as a result of those collisions and Congress started taking away certain of our authorities. Um, we, we started to have to require our, our people driving ships to have logbooks like uh, pilots have logbooks to record hours and, and things of that nature. And so that's what's going on here, I think, really is this how do I restore trust? Um, or in cases with the black community or people of color, they never had that trust going back to the days of the slave patrols. And, and so it's a, a real challenge of what does it really mean to be a profession? Um, 
and, and hold yourself accountable. And it's got to be transparent. I mean, a doctor screws up, the AMA is going to hold them accountable and suspend their license, or they may be operating under a consent decree with the state or something of that nature. And it's published. Uh, we don't see any of that with the police. Uh, and, and hence, one bad apple can go from one police department to another police department to another. Um, and there's no sense of institutional accountability. Oh. All right, what say you panel on this topic? Go for it, Eli. Well, I just was gonna say that, you know, we have therapists, psychologists, uh, doctors, you know, they take that code of ethics of do no harm, you know? And so it's like, when you think about in the realm of policing, it's actually okay to harm <laughs> and, and it's okay to kill and it's okay to be reckless. And all you have to say is I was afraid. And that to me speaks volumes. If you're not holding yourself, like, like I love what Kenny just said about the fact that like, you don't have to be a perfect citizen because we're all going to make mistakes, but does that mean you have to be that you're going to be gunned down in the streets? Because we have it's a systemic issue. People run even unarmed because of the history behind people dying at the hand of police. And there'll be no accountability. Do no harm. There's no trust, right? Go, go ahead, Kenny. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in Boston, there was a case that that uh, the defendant claimed he ran from the cops and he said, hey, there's been a history of, of the cops killing blacks. So that's why I ran and actually won because um, that was proven to be true. Um, so so that that is there um, 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 as well. I really, I sat for a minute just thinking about do no harm. I mean, if, if, if the cops had that as a mantra, how different would things be? Um, when you think about it that way, um, that really resonated with me to, 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 to say, hey, if we can get them to live like that and operate in, in, in their roles like that and think first, these are people that I shouldn't harm. I think that would just change a, a lot there. We wouldn't need as many rules and, and policies and checking and checking again if that's how they would start to approach um, their work. So, so that really um, you know, resonated with me um, just, just hearing that. You know, and the other thing is licensed therapists and psychologists have to do annual, gets annual CEUs. They have to review, they have they to, in order to keep their license, there are certain things that they have to do. And I think that this applying the same thing to policing, I mean, if you're going to be a cop, if you do not have knowledge and awareness about folks other than you, then you shouldn't be a cop. You just shouldn't be a cop. Right. 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 And 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 just wanted to mention one thing because Tom mentioned that is it a profession? And you know, that's something to think about as well. Like what do we all had to do to enter our professions? We had to do a lot of different things. And 
I wanted to mention is, is, is one of the things Obama, he uh, put in place a 21st century task force um, on policing. And so one of their provisions was building trust. That's what the police department is supposed to do. So that was one of the pillars there is to build trust and legitimacy. And so that is one of their jobs. And, and you know, if you think about how you interact with your local police department, have they really built trust and legitimacy with you? And it's something to think about um, when you think about your local police department. That is a role. That is something, one of the things that they should be doing with their community. You know, um, I often think about, uh, you know, uh, Eli has, has said, uh, do no, do no harm. And I also think about the uh, slogan, protect and serve. And, you know, they're, they're both pretty two innocuous things. Like, you know, I mean, we should probably have another one, you know, be nice. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, like, you know, it's, it's kind of like the same thing, you know? So I'm from Kansas City, uh, Missouri. I'm from uh, Southside. It's, you know, fair, fairly rough neighborhood. And, Growing up, you know, and this is something that uh, that I, that I, that I wrote about in a piece for your tango. You know, growing up, we would see police, and they would they would not mess with. I mean, they wouldn't do anything aggressively physically to me, but it was their presence it was almost like we were we were living in a uh, in a in a I mean, lack of a better term, in like a police state already because you know we grew up hearing from people oh man you know the the police jacked me up they uh they planted some dope on me uh you know they pulled me over for no reason so you got to think about it you know I, I was seven eight year eight years old i'm already being being like hearing all this stuff you know hearing this stuff then when i then when i turned 16 you know my mom she gave me the gave me the uh, the talk, and and for those who don't know what that is, that is a conversation that black parents have with their kids when they get to a certain age. You know, uh, some parents, you know, maybe be like white, maybe like white white parents. They they may tell their kids, all right, listen, you know, you want to have like the birds and the bees. You know, uh, this is why you need to go to school. My mom was pretty much telling me, listen, this is what I need you to do to come home. A alive so the so the stakes are quite differently i'm sorry are quite different uh i just you know if i mean it's it's hard to think about trust with the black community and the police um eli i reckon that with the indigenous communities fairly fairly similar way that we view the that we view the police so I, I just think like gathering trust i mean it's i'm not gonna i mean like nothing's imp impossible but just the uh the deficit is so large that i don't think that there's anything especially when you have people you know saying blue lives matter as saviors I mean, I, I just don't think that there's anything that can be done in this lifetime, you know, I mean, but again, you know, I could be wrong. I, I, I mean, I, you know, to, to quote Studs Terkel, you know, hope dies last. So, you know, we have to have hope, but we also have to be realistic. And so, 
until black people as well as indigenous people are treated as as human as human beings and treated with a certain certain respect like respect me like a white person and if you start doing 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 that then possibly things will change so i don't know you know um i'm a dreamer so <laughs> it's what it is and you, you guys say such great stuff. I'm just like, <laughs> it, yeah, uh, that's why I love being on the panel with you too. It's, it's, it's great. I mean, Leron, you're, you're going to the core of, we can put rules on top of rules, on top of rules, on oversight. The core root cause is the injustice and, and the racism in our society in America. And the police are just living. They're just a group, one system that they have a gun but they execute this same thing in healthcare. Your your the inequality is there, and and you you have it in every in the financial system. You can't get a loan. It's everywhere else. It's just in this case, these guys have guns, so you see people die in the street. So we would need to really fix that. We need to go upstream to really fix the problem. We would need to go upstream when we're talking with the police department. And you know, I'm here. I'm I'm here saying, hey, I'm want to put in the community review board. But this is a symptom fix. This is like, let me fix some of the symptoms of the problem here. So I'm here like, you know, giving you some Tylenol. Let's fix that. But we don't know why you really have the fever. I don't know. We're, we're not really addressing that. So what you're talking about is the, the real change. We're going to have to go upstream and upstream um, just in our American culture. We kicked it off with those racist laws being infused, well, racism infused into law. And so that just kicked the policy off. And that we just finally got the laws off the books. It hasn't been that long. The civil rights movement was 65. Like we're not talking about, you know, 400 years ago, um, you know, this stuff was a race. We're saying 1965, we finally got the last rules off the books. Well, uh, my father was alive then. So this is not even one generation removed um, when, when this happened. So, you know, we, we would definitely have to go upstream. So that was a great point. Speaking of upstream, Kenny, you know, um, Derek and I have been watching this amazing documentary um, about uh, the Philly DA. And it's really amazing because they talk about the role of the prosecutors as it relates to mass incarceration and their, uh, you know, all the shadiness that goes on between the police and the DAs and how much power that they have and how that that just trickled down to mass incarceration rates and, and all of this. It's, it's really quite fascinating. But again, it goes back to something that I think all of you guys hit on, which is the trust factor that is sorely lacking throughout each element of this existing system, the policing system, the judicial system. Um, they, it is not set up to work for us. It is not set up to uh, create any type of equity or equality. There is never this, as Laurent said a few minutes ago, treat me like a white person. Like, I can't even imagine like saying that, right? Um, it's just, it's, it's baffling. And I don't know, you know, I don't know what it's going to take. I think you guys have great ideas. Um, you know, I wish that there were some other ways. I know Kenny, you know, each of you are using your voices within your communities and your platforms to inspire and encourage change. But if there was one thing, cause I know we're coming up on time. If there was one thing, if you had like a magic wand and you could change this one thing, uh, what would it be? 
sound off, starting with you, Eli. Well, <laughs> you know what? I, I just got to go back to what I said the first time and burn it all down. It's we got to burn it all down before we can magic wand anything, you know, cause I was sitting here thinking as you were talking that what happens with a lot of retire, retired police, uh, police people, police folks, right. They actually get hired to go and work in our public schools as the security guards. Yep. Nothing has changed though, because now what they're doing is they're, they're harming young kids in these schools and starting it's the prison, prison, your school, the prison pipeline, they should not be in the schools, retire and go away or just be, just stop. It's all the part of the systemic issues that continue to happen. And, and we don't have the kind of training around how to be with people um, who have dealt with a lot of trauma already in their lives. You know, we black, brown and indigenous folks, we have historical trauma. We have familial trauma. We have, we're, we're living proof that our ancestors went through hell and back. The trail of tears is real. Slavery is real. These are all things that are passed down to us in our DNA. And all of the stuff that continues to happen is just, it's just, it's just hitting on those same wounds over and over and over again. So we do have to heal ourselves, but man, I think burn it all down. I'm just all at the burn it all down part. <laughs> I'm talking about throwing bombs and Eli's over here talking about burning down. Give me a, a, a flamethrower. <laughs> there you go. Take it out. All right. What say you, Kenny G? Yeah. Um, one thing. Yeah. One thing. Fine. You make, it, you, make it, you make it tough. You know? I mean, you got to pick something really impactful. One thing. I mean, I think I would, would kind of follow that trail of going upstream. Like what would I change upstream? And, and I think about when, when America was formed, I would wanna be in that room to say, this table is big enough for everyone. This, this country has enough resources for everyone. There, you know, I'm, I'm a, I was an economics major. They teach you that resources are scarce and that's what economics is, the study of the scarce resources. So we start scaring you from the beginning that there's not enough. And we need to do something about that. But we've proven in America, there is enough. It hasn't, if I look at this engine, it hasn't run dry. It hasn't run short. It, it, it is enough. And when we were in that, you know, in our formation stage, there wasn't that view in the room to say, hey, there is enough. So we started with the scarcity mentality and that just bred into, well, I need to get mine. And that might be at a sacrifice of you even though we all could have worked together to grow this pie. And so I would wanna kind of go to that beginning stage and, and try to kick off um, equity in the beginning. And so we don't need to try to fix equity now. Okay, so burn it all down and go back to the beginning. You've got the last word, Laurent. Um, I'm no surprise from me, ladies and gentlemen, uh, just we need to up, uproot it and burn it all down. It's, it's a, uh, it's a flawed experiment. It's never going to get any, any better. There's a, there's a, there's an economics term and I'm, I'm pretty sure Kenny, uh, you, uh, you, you can probably tell me it, it's like, you're, you're, uh, you know, uh, you, you know that you've lost money or 
on yet uh, but uh but yet you keep on you know sort of funding it or or working on it be, uh, because you because you've been doing it for so uh for so long i i can't remember the uh yes uh sarah thank you sunk sunk costs so you know where it's it it's a sunken cost system so it's not going to get any any better it's just going to keep mutating into something else so i mean yeah you know burn it all down let's start over let's start with something that is truly equitable and let's start with something that um that can truly protect and serve everybody wow wow i think we all have a lot of great ideas um i think for each of us it's doing our part using our voices and our platforms um our privilege where we have it to advance these conversations and and be part of the change that we want to see so I want to say thank you so much to Laron Barton, Kenny Green, and Eli Rigatuso for another wonderful conversation. Thank you so much to our amazing uh, guests. Uh, I'm sorry, our uh, participants. Um, the chat was flying so fast. I was just trying to make sure I, uh, I grabbed everything off of there. So fantastic engagement. Thank you all. Um, I want to say uh, come back next week. We're going to have a really interesting discussion with Mark Travis Rivera, When They See Me, Disability, Diversity, and Intersectionality. And that's going to be moderated by the lovely Sarah Phelps. So, so excited for that conversation. I was actually just on the Ability Summit today for Microsoft, and they talked about disability, uh, diversity, and intersectionality. So I'm super excited to hear what uh, Mr. Rivera has to say about that. Um, so for everybody else, please come back next week. Join us. Be sure to register on LinkedIn. And for those of you who haven't done so already, please hashtag join lead. So thank you again. Everybody continue to be safe and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you again for tuning into this special episode on the Leading People First podcast. We hope you can join us next time live as we come together to learn, activate and empower to make a difference in the world. Again, we meet every Thursday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 4.30 p.m. Pacific. You can find the group and next event on LinkedIn. If you'd like more information, feel free to reach out to me directly. All of the group information, as well as my own, is in the show notes. Don't forget to click that subscribe button to hear more of our conversations moving forward and share this episode. We're so excited that you've joined us in this movement. Let's go out into the world and lead together. Stay awesome.